Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to a special Sunday edition of the Gluten-Free Voice. I'm Jules Shepard and I am pleased today to be able to bring you a wonderful resource for our community and um, that is Cynthia Cupper. She is the Executive Director of the Gluten Intolerance Group of North America. Some of you might know it as GIG, G-I-G. It's a fantastic organization that is a national organization, has lots of branches all over the country with smaller support groups, but they do all kinds of wonderful programs and things to serve anyone who's living gluten-free for medical reasons. And I'm really happy that we were able to make it happen so she could be on today so we can talk about some of these wonderful initiatives and get into all kinds of really interesting stuff that's going on in the gluten-free world right now. But thank you, Cynthia, for making yourself available today um, on a Sunday. You're welcome. I know you're traveling right now, so it's a little bit even hard to get a hold of you, but I really do appreciate you making yourself available. Those of you who tuned in on Thursday when this um, broadcast was supposed to air, we had some technical difficulties, so I apologize if you tuned in on Thursday and were not able to hear it. But we will have the full hour today. And if you'd like to call in, you can call at 347-202-0199. And I do try to get to a few of the callers whenever I can, but sometimes we get into a lot of um really important information that's hard to get to callers. So please feel free to call in, but understand you might have to wait. You can also tweet, and it would be hashtag gluten-free-voice. And if you have a question for Cynthia Cupper, then I will try to read those questions on the air as well. Well, without further ado, Cynthia, thank you again for coming on. Uh, you know, I think what's really interesting to me about your tenure with the Gluten Intolerance Group is that you've been there, it's like 16 years, right? Yes, I have. <laughs> Does that seem like like that could not even be possible that you've been there for so long? Well, I actually, in my career, have only had three jobs. So, no, it doesn't seem unusual to me. It may seem unusual to other people. So, um, Well, to me, you, you are gig. Like, when I first had anything to do with um, celiac organizations or support groups or anything like that, you were, you know, already in the thick of things. So, to me, you are the embodiment of gig. Um, and I should say, you know, gig has a ton of different programs, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show. One of them is the gluten-free certification program um, that has that GF symbol. A lot of people have seen on foods, and we always encourage people to buy food that have the symbol instead of foods that just merely say gluten-free because right now, at least in the current state of things, there are no federal gluten-free food uh, labeling laws. And we know later on this year the FDA is going to put out its final um, regulations so we'll have a better understanding of that. But right now, the very best thing that people can do to make sure that they're safe on a gluten-free diet is try to buy foods that have that GF symbol, which is from the Gluten-Free Certification Organization. Um, there are a couple other organizations as well, CSA and NFCA through QAI now also have certification organizations. These are all um, independently run certifiers to verify that the products are less than 20 parts per million or in the case of GFCO, um, less than 10 parts per million. Is that That's right, isn't it, less than 10? Yes. In fact, all of the certification programs in the United States have a standard of um, 10 ppm or less. Uh, CSA's program actually is at 5 ppm or no detectable. 
Okay. Well, and I should say in the spirit of fair disclosure, all of my Jules gluten-free products are actually certified gluten-free by the Gluten-Free Certification Organization, which is run through GIG, and they have been for years. So I um, obviously I believe very strongly in the value of the program and the, the service that you're offering. But it's not just for manufacturers to, to get these actual certifications. There are several other programs that you all are running through GIG. You have a, a national meeting every year, and that's coming, that's next month, isn't it, in Seattle? It is. And what, what's, in, what's on tap for that? When is it? It's June 14th and 15th. It's actually what we call a health and wellness experience. So we've taken a different step from the traditional conference that we do. June 14th and 15th, we will have a leaders training, and we've actually opened this up to all leaders in any support group. We're not going to talk about GIG stuff. We're going to talk about things that every leader needs to know and have resources for in order to run a support group. It's getting harder and harder to maintain support groups, to keep volunteers busy helping you, and for many of these leaders, it feels like they're the only ones doing it. So we plan on having a lot of resources for them, a lot of time for them to network with each other and learn from each other what works and doesn't work. On June 16th, then, we will have the health and wellness experience, and and it's sort of a food fair with a health screening and some quick and easy learning tips. So it's really about learning all the things that you could do in one day that will help you to live healthy and not so much lecture, so very interactive. There will be health screenings for cholesterol, blood sugars, um, blood pressure. There will be dietitians on staff. There will be bone density. Uh, there will also be um, people looking at other types of health screenings for you. Giving you some information, we find that, at least in Washington State, a significant amount of people with any type of gluten sensitivity don't have the insurance or are lacking adequate insurance to be able to do health screenings that are all of us should do. So we want to offer those services. It's free of charge to do the health screenings. There is a small fee to get in the door, and if you say to us, hey, I can't afford it, we'll let you in anyway. Um, there's a lot of vendors there. There's about 60 vendors there who are going to be showing off their products, um, some different opportunities they have for relaxation techniques and things like that, as well as these 30-minute soundbite uh, talks that give you practical tips that you can go home with that day in order to help make healthy lifestyle changes. Wow, that sounds wonderful. I mean, yeah, it does. It sounds really neat. And I I spoke at one of your national um, conferences a few years back in Seattle, and it was fantastic. But this sounds really, really neat that you're going to have all those screenings there and a lot of hands-on sort of learning um, experiences. Actually, if I failed to mention at the beginning of the show, you're also a registered dietitian. So you're coming at this from a really unique perspective, I think, um, holistically when you're talking about the programs that GIG has to offer because you obviously have in the forefront of your mind the the whole health and and diet piece as being something that's so important for those of us with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. I actually got a question on Twitter for you 
a little bit earlier today, because as you sort of alluded to, a lot of folks with celiac disease or gluten sensitivity have some other issues as well. They might have, um, you know, diabetes, or there could be thyroid issues, or you know, other problems that are not directly related to, you know, that are not solved by a gluten-free diet necessarily. But one that I get a lot is the glycemic index issue, and people are saying I need to eat, you know, less. Um, you know, foods that are lower on that glycemic index, and I need to, you know, stay away from the refined sugars and things like that. Do you see a really strong connection with folks who have sensitivities to gluten and also are having issues with sugar or glycemic problems? Well, we're seeing more issues with people getting heavier with celiac disease, whether that is because they are substituting a significant amount of the carbohydrates that they've had to give up with gluten-free products that, as a rule, tend to be higher in Mm -hmm. calories, as well as tend to be very refined. What that means is um, the flours and things they're made from turn into sugar very quickly in the body. Mm -hmm. And so people may have blood sugar changes. This might be a precursor to type 2 diabetes. It might just be that they don't handle sugar well. And we are seeing more and more people with gluten sensitivities, celiac disease, who just don't handle carbohydrates and especially um, sugars very well. So we are starting to see some of the centers, the research centers, using what we call a FODMAP diet where they reduce the amount of carbohydrates, especially fructose or fruit sugar type carbohydrates in the diet. And that helps to kind of even out that blood sugar. Because if a blood sugar goes too low, it kind of makes you feel dopey, drained, no energy, maybe become a little scatterbrained. If it goes too high, um, for those who have a precursor to diabetes, it can cause some other health problems for you. Well, and I think that's a really good point. Yeah, so many of the processed gluten-free foods out there, a lot of the replacements for things that people were maybe eating before they went gluten-free, so many of them are, as you say, refined, but also higher in sugar and fat. And um, I get that question all the time, you know, why is that? Why, you know, it's bad enough that a cookie was not so good for you before, but now it's really bad for you when it's gluten-free. And and you do see that. And so I just strongly recommend to people that they stay away from the processed gluten-free foods as much as possible because you are going to get into that, you know, refined, high-sugar, high-fat sort of um, downfall there with a lot of those products. And, and hopefully that will start to get better as, you know, there will be more and more products in the market. But if you can have the ability to make anything at home, you can control that a lot better. You can use less refined sugars. You can use different types of fats. You could cook lower fat. And certainly you could um, work with some other types of gluten-free flours that are not quite as refined or have other um, dietary, you know, benefits with protein or omega-3s or fiber, all kinds of things like that. So thank you for addressing that. And I promised this woman on Twitter I would try to get that question in. So now we're out of the way. We can move on to other things. But um, So back to sort of some other stuff that, that, that GIG is doing. Um, we mentioned the gluten-free certification organization, and I guess I, I would just say, first of all, do you know even how many manufacturers or how many products are currently certified by the gluten-free certification organization? I know it's international. It's not even just in the United States, but do you even know? It's a, it's a lot, but I'm just right. curious. So um, the gluten-free certification organization at this point in time certifies over 10,000 products across um, a number of different product lines. So we have nutraceuticals that we certify, as well as the traditional gluten-free products, um, breads, pastas, things like that. 
We have a few beverage items. We have dairy products. Uh, you know, I swore I would never get into or um, cosmetics and things like that because it's really not necessary when you have celiac disease. Now, that may be different when you have gluten sensitivities. And because of demand um, by consumers, we do now certify products uh, that are used as topical ointments or lotions for people. And we are looking at um, a line of possibly skincare products and things like that. Um, we've been approached by a number of different types of companies and for all very interesting reasons. For instance, um, meat trays that may be made from wheat fiber, is that a potential problem? It must be because um, this one company in particular is having trouble selling their meat trays if they're made from a wheat-based fiber. Uh, So we've been approached by those kinds of companies too. But we do do audits in 14 different countries, and um, every company is audited on a yearly basis. Well, can you um, just briefly describe what does that mean? I mean, I know because I'm subject to it with my products, but I don't think most people know when you say that every company, every manufacturing facility, every product, what does an audit mean for that? Okay. So the certification program has two, well, basically three phases. There is an application phase, and based on the application, we do risk assessment. So it's called a desk audit. And we do risk assessment on the ingredient. We think we know what the risk of the facility is going to be based on the application and the information we collect that comes in. Once we have a risk assessment done and the company has agreed to an audit, we send a third-party auditor out there. These are people who have at least five years' experience in auditing processes in manufacturing plants. So they have either been an FDA, a USDA, or maybe they do quality control in manufacturing facilities, those types of people, people who are used to performing audits. Some of our audits, auditors do kosher audits. Some of them do HACCP audits or um, SQF audits, which are food safety audits for companies. So they're very used to being in the plant. They go into the plant. They are looking very specifically to make sure that the information we have on the application is the same information that we're seeing in the plant's records, is the same thing we're seeing in the warehouse, and that is going into the product. So we're doing what's called a traceability, and we're tracing those ingredients to the end product. They're also looking for a number of other things. They're looking to make sure that cross-contamination issues are handled appropriately. Are they segregating in their storage? How are things being staged when it comes to getting ready to produce them into a batch formula? What is the equipment like? Um, Is it being cleaned adequately? Is there airborne dust that needs to be of concern? Um, What type of equipment are they using? And then from all this information that the auditor sends back to us, we create a contract for a company. And the contract, one of the three things that the contract says is that the companies have to undergo at least an annual audit, but if they're considered a higher-risk company, they may undergo two, three, four audits a year. That means, again, we're sending somebody into the plant every time. Um, they also have to agree to do testing on a regular basis. 
So they might be required to test raw material. That's the in products they use in the finished product. They might be required to test equipment. They might be required to, uh, they're always required to test finished product. Now, depending upon the finished product, sometimes the testing methods available to them don't work well, and so they might send their products out to a laboratory, or if they have an in-house laboratory that can run these tests, they would run them in-house. And then what we do is we pull from what's called um, point of sale. We pull product periodically, and we send it to a laboratory without the companies knowing it. So you jewels would probably never know when, we, when we're testing your products unless it comes back high. Mm -hmm. And our standard for high is over 10 ppm. So at that point in time, we would contact you. We would um, say we want to see your current testing records, especially related to the lot we're testing. We would pull all of our um, information to see how the, your audits have gone, to see if there's been anything that was missed. And we might say to you, okay, we need to do audits more frequently, or we're going to send an auditor in now. Um, we might do additional testing. Anytime a product comes back over 10 parts per million, we always send the product back to the lab and ask them to test it again. And sometimes we will send it to a second lab. Sometimes we will also ask for, ask for very specialized tests that help us to determine exactly what the problem is, whether it's rye or whether it's a cross-reactivity or something like that. Well, and also because of potential for hot spots, right? Yes, and hot spots are really tough. Um, Trish and I, Thompson and I were talking the other day, and we're actually going to try and pull together a, a joint statement about testing because it is so difficult to know um, how much testing to do many of these manufacturers will bring in what's called a super tote, and it'll hold 500 to um, 1,000 pounds of flour. And you can test it several times and get really good results, and you can probe one other spot, and all of a sudden you've got a bad spot. Now, that doesn't appear necessarily to always be indicative of the entire 1,000 pounds of flour, but you have to decide then what is the problem? What do you do about that? And that's where we work very closely with these companies. Anytime um, companies have issues with their testing, I was just looking at an, a company who sent me a message and said, we decided to spot check, and here's what we found. What do we do now? And so we go through and we problem solve with them, and we decide what the course of action should be so that we can keep consumers safe. Well, and so, I yeah, think... What's I think most confusing for consumers, what I hear all the time, is that people feel like if there is something on the label that says it's manufactured in a facility that also produces wheat or something like that, because there's several mm -hmm. different types of statements like that, they automatically think that the product is contaminated and that they need to avoid the product um, if they're living gluten-free. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that's a common misconception from the gluten-free consumer's point of view, and it's completely understandable why, but you certify right. plenty of products that are also made in facilities that um, contain or lines that produce something that contains gluten. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about is what is called a voluntary advisory statement. They were originally developed for people who had anaphylactic type allergies, so IgE allergies. 
and they were designed to give them a heads up that if they were very, very sensitive, it may not be advantageous for them to use a product produced in this plant. Um, what we have found over the last couple of few years, and the FDA is finding this too, is that as more and more awareness comes about about allergies, manufacturers are oftentimes using these as what we would call a, a CYA statement. They're basically covering their liability by putting statements on there, whether it's true or not, that they are processing a plant with or they're uh, manufacturing on the same line. I actually consulted with a company who purposely puts allergens in every one of their products in order to not have to deal with the allergen issue. And I was just appalled that they would do that. Um, that however, is... because it's a voluntary <laughs> statement, wow. I know, it's yeah. just like, really? <laughs> because yeah. it's a voluntary statement, nobody ever has to use that statement. Right. And so you never know whether a company is putting it on there because they really are trying to disclose possible concerns and are being above board and highly ethical or whether they're basically covering a potential liability. Right. It's possible with the FDA gluten-free labeling that those statements may not be allowed on a gluten-free product because for a gluten-free product, if based on proposed labeling regulations, they are meaningless. What right. that means, basically, is if the FDA says that a, gluten, a product can only be labeled gluten-free if it's less than 20 parts per million, that is the finished product. Therefore, any cross-contamination issues in that facility would be caught in that 20 parts per million right. testing. And so it may... The FDA has considered, and I don't know where they're going with it, that maybe they wouldn't allow that statement on a gluten-free product. The other challenge is a lot of times these mixed facilities have separate rooms where they do the gluten-free product. They only produce it on certain days, and it's a very safe process. Or they use dedicated equipment and things like that. So those statements really are kind of misleading and confusing. Yeah, I think it's very confusing because you look at, you know, what one product in your hands doesn't have that statement on it and another product has the mm -hmm. statement and automatically you think, oh, but this one could be contaminated because it has wheat in the facility. What the consumer doesn't understand is that the one that doesn't have the statement about wheat could also have wheat in the facility because it is a voluntary statement. So it's very confusing and I exactly. do hope that the FDA addresses that this year when they um, put forth their final labeling um, regulations for gluten-free because I think that exactly. does Definitely needs to be addressed, and it's very confusing. Now, what about well, um, and Jules? Just a, real quickly, too. What mm -hmm. the American, what the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has made recommendation in their um, toolkit on celiac disease for dietitians is that we not advise patients to use that statement. So when I'm counseling a patient about a gluten-free diet and label reading, I'm telling them don't look at that statement to determine gluten-free. Right. Yeah, I think that's um, that's wise. But it is so confusing, particularly when you're new to the diet, to try to make sense of the labels, which is why this time last year, you know, we had our gluten-free labeling summit in Washington, D.C., and we mm -hmm. built the world's tallest gluten-free cake to, uh, you know, to bring attention to the matter because not only is there a giant void in terms of gluten-free food labeling rules, but 
what's out there is a really just a wild west approach to it with you know manufacturers putting whatever they want to on the label and it's extremely confusing for consumers which is again why I always tell people look for a certification from a private organization like GFCO because then you know no matter if there's wheat in the facility or not um that the product is you know meets their specifications which is less than 10 parts per million gluten so I think, um, right. you know, hopefully moving forward we'll be able to understand, you know, the consumer will be able to understand that a little bit better. But what if a company is listening to this broadcast right now and they're on the fence about whether they should get certified? You know, they, they make a product, they already say it's gluten-free, maybe they do their own testing or they send it out to a lab and, and you know, they feel confident that their product is gluten-free. So why should they spend the extra money to get a certification, particularly if the FDA is going to rule on gluten-free later this year and everyone's going to have to play by the same rules? Okay. So a couple of things. First of all, I tell a company, if they're confident in their product and they're doing everything that they need to be doing, they've got an internal testing process in place, they know that their product is under 20 parts per million, the proposed FDA standard, there is absolutely no reason that they need to be gluten-free. However, here's what's happening. The consumers are demanding certification of some type, whether it's from us, CSA or NFCA, or even the Canadian program, which is to be launched, I believe, next weekend, or maybe it's this weekend, um, consumers are demanding certification. They want to know that somebody is checking on these companies and that it's a third-party audit. Anybody can say they're doing something, but if you don't let somebody into your plant to verify that, who knows what is really happening? It's their word. Um, at the same time, it's really important to recognize that while certification is a benefit to the consumers, at this point in time, I don't believe certification will go away. And yeah. this is why. The FDA is going to set a what's basically a minimum standard. They're going to set, you can have, you can have a maximum, excuse me, it's a maximum standard. They're going to set a maximum of less than 20 parts per million to be labeled gluten-free. In the United States, because all of the programs are at 10 ppm or less, the companies who choose to certify do that to set themselves apart. So it becomes a marketing opportunity for them to say, I have a third party coming into my plant. I am testing lower than the FDA's proposed standard, therefore, Potentially, maybe true, maybe not true, my product is better than what the FDA will say is the, be- is the minimum standard that they have to meet. Um, I don't think certification programs will go away because if the FDA was going to suggest that they needed to go away, that there could only be one definition, very much like the organic certification, it would have had to go through a similar process as um, the proposed labeling law to begin with. And from our discussion with FDA attorneys, that was never brought into the picture. So if they want to do that, and they could still do that, that will take another round of listing it in the Code of Federal Registry, make, allowing consumers to have a uh, comment on it and su- such mm-hmm. and such. Yeah, and and I would tend to agree with you. I think, I mean, I think it's going to be a benefit to the manufacturers to be certified once the FDA rules come out, because then it 
shows the FDA that you're in compliance because you're you're even going mm-hmm. one step higher. And you're also making sure that you're up with the industry best practices because those have been evolving and they will continue to evolve as testing mechanisms get better and we learn more about how you know processing can change and, and be safer for the consumer. So um, I also think it speaks volumes to the consumer when a manufacturer bothers to get the certification it's not free you have to pay for it and you mm-hmm. have to you know live by somebody else's rules and you have to be willing to let someone else come in your facility and so you know you're going to all this trouble to show the gluten-free consumer that you that you care and that it matters to you that you're doing it right and i think that's also a message that it's very valuable for um, for manufacturers to be sending to this consumer that they're hoping will be their customer. So I also agree with you. I don't think it's going away, but I, I do hear that from other manufacturers, and um, so I was interested to hear, you know, what your response to that question would be. Yeah, um, from all the research we've done, from our consultations with FDA legal people, um, it's not going away. And, in fact, what is happening is uh, the UK would like to come into the United States and actually sort of take over all the certification that happens, but their standard is what the world standard is, and that is 20 ppm. So it's doubtful that they would even come into the U.S. because the FDA is actually setting setting the standard below Codex by a point. Codex says mm-hmm. it can be 20 ppm. FDA is saying it has to be <laughs> less under than 20 ppm. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and you mentioned Codex. You know, one of the other things is we talk about what what we are expecting to see from the FDA later this year. The Codex Elementaris is the European equivalent of, you know, what's going on with the FDA here at home. And they have already done it, and their their standard went into effect um, in January of this year. So we're somewhat behind. But we also are cognizant of what's going on there and are trying to sort of, you know, stay in line with that so that we have, you know, a world market for foods that, that makes, you know, trade a lot easier and, and things like that. Plus, that's where the the um, the research shows it needs to be, you know, less than 20 parts per million to be safe for celiac. Right. So based upon that, though, we looked to Codex and we said, like, what are their standards, what are their rules, and, you know, does it make sense for us here in the United States? And one of the things that is in the EU under the Codex that we are not, I don't think, going to see here in the United States is the differentiation between gluten-free and low-gluten. And by that, um, I mean, you know, over in Europe, you can have something labeled low-gluten, and it's less than 100 parts per million, right? Correct. I think it's less. Correct. It's 100 parts per million less. And, and then that, gluten-free yeah, so is 20. Right, 20 or less. Right. And, and we all considered that. And when we put forth our comments to the FDA, we argued against this tiered system because, uh, you know, it is confusing. And because, you know, like Dr. Guandolini's statement that came out last week um, when he talked about the fact that, you know, through the North American Society for the Study of Celiac Disease, he said, we don't know enough about gluten sensitivity to know whether, you know, low gluten is safe for someone with gluten sensitivity or not. And we know that low gluten is not safe for people with celiac disease. It has to be less than 20 parts per million. So a tiered system is sending mixed signals to people who are living gluten-free for medically necessitated reasons. So we argued against that, and, and we're hoping that we will not see that in the final regs that come out from the FDA. But what we're seeing instead of in the manufacturing context, is we're seeing this come up in the restaurant space where 
you have restaurants who are starting out with something that is arguably gluten-free, even to less than 20 parts per million, but if it's contaminated and then served to the consumer, maybe it's low gluten at that point. But, you know, that, again, gets us into the conversation of, but is that safe for anyone who's eating gluten-free for medically necessitated reasons? And it's confusing, and it's sending the wrong signals. So this tiered system is rearing its ugly head again, even though we tried to put it to bed for food manufacturing. We're seeing it now in the restaurant industry. And you work with lots of restaurants with your programs. So I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit in the context of how you work with restaurants to avoid contamination and you know what the systems are there in place to you know ensure that it is gluten free or or whether or not it's a low gluten situation. Okay, so one of the first things that's really important to remember is that when you buy food, whether it is a packaged food or a meal in a restaurant, ultimately the consumer has some obligation in making sure that they are confident that they are buying safe food. Now, that's not to say that they will know it's always safe, but that they have done, they've asked their own questions and they have done everything that they feel necessary to make sure it is safe. And we know this happens in manufacturers all the time. The number one question manufacturers get related to their products they produce is, is it gluten-free? So customers, consumers call manufacturers all the time and they ask these questions, it's still important, no matter whether a restaurant has a gluten-free menu or you're choosing to eat off of a regular menu, to always ask the questions and make sure that you are confident for yourself that this is a safe food. Having said that, what we do is we have been running a – we took on running the management of the Gluten-Free Restaurant Awareness Program several years ago um, from one of the Westchester groups in New York. In that program, Westchester was working with independent restaurants where they would help them. They would go in, they would teach them about cross-contamination and review their menus and sign off, basically, and say that they were part of the Restaurant Awareness Program. At the same time, I started working with um, OSI, Outback Steakhouse Concepts, and I have been working with them and many chain restaurants for many years. What we do in this program now, we became very concerned that while I love the passion of consumers, we needed to make sure from a liability standpoint that the information being given was accurate and was consistent. So we created from um, the Reginald program, we created a manual to give to the restaurants that has a lot of training materials, kitchen posters, education things for them, Q&A, all of the pat answers, and it's a manual we use when a restaurant comes back and says, you know, I'm getting asked about vinegar, I'm getting asked about vodka, here's the statement that you give to the consumer, or here's what you tell your employees, so that the message is always consistent. Um, In that program, we are looking at menus, we are reviewing them. Now, sometimes the menu is given to us by the restaurant. And us is a team of volunteer dietitians who reviews the menus, we review the ingredients, and we eventually, when all of our concerns and questions are answered and we feel like the restaurant has done a good job, we will sign off that they have offered a gluten-free menu. We provide them with the training material to do the training for their staff. 
the other way this program works, and this is where some people believe it to be a tiered program, is instead of the menus being given to us, we actually sign non-disclosure agreements with the restaurants, and we do all the work. So we get all of their 2,000 ingredients that they purchase for their meals in their restaurants across the nation. We review all of those. We give it back to them, telling them what is gluten-free, what is not, and with a risk assessment to it. We then do the same thing with all of their recipes and ultimately their menus so that when we, we've done the work instead of the restaurant doing the work. Um, okay. And we still provide them with all the training materials and things like that. To me, that program is not as robust as it could be, and I, I still get concerned. Um, in the 16 years that I've been doing this program with restaurants, we have had probably less than 30 complaints from any patient or, excuse me, any consumer. So as soon as we get a complaint, from a consumer. We immediately talk to the consumer. We find out what the issues are. We try to assess whether, from a dietitian's standpoint, could it have been something else or is it directly related to the meal? Um, because we know that some people won't react for several hours. So right. it could have been two meals ago, not the meal they just ate. Um, it could be the stomach flu. And so we're trying to assess that with the consumer. We also contact the restaurant immediately and say, we've got a consumer complaint. Here's what the consumer is telling us. Can you help us to reassess um, what happened that evening? And then we come up with a corrective action plan for the restaurant, and we follow that through. What we have done, and we're going to be phasing that program out because we don't feel it's robust enough. So what it's going to become is the food service accreditation program that we actually run. And in that program, we have set up best practices for restaurants. And when a restaurant or any type of food service goes through that program, they are automatically required, we are automatically require them to set up policies, procedures, and practices that are put into place that involve six key areas where there could be potential for cross-contamination. So from buying their ingredients to storage to prep, to actually serving the consumer, et cetera, we then go in and we audit against those practices. So we do a desk audit. We know what they are supposed to have in place. We go in and we do a physical audit, and we make sure that they're actually practicing what they say they're doing. Now, I have to tell you, not everybody passes an audit. And I'll say the same thing about manufacturers. We, there have been many manufacturers where we have denied certification to because they don't have the practices in place. We do the same thing with restaurants. So if they don't meet the standard, there's no way we're going to sign off on it. And by signing off, what do you mean? Is there a seal? Is there a sticker? Is there a name? I mean, what, how, did, how would a consumer know right. that this is a restaurant that has been identified by GIG as um, safe to eat at for celiac or gluten sensitivity? So one of the things we're doing is we offer, we issue a certificate to the food service to display if they so choose to. We also are issuing them a statement that they can use on their menus if they want to or in any type of advertising. Um, not all of them do that. 
predominantly, but you can also find some of that information on our food service website. Um, and we've shown that this works across all different types of food services. So, for instance, we have a relationship with the Gaylord Hotels. So the Opryland has been through this program, and every single restaurant in that location has been audited, independent of the others. We've done this at hospitals. So um, Erlinger Medical Center in Tennessee and the University of Chicago Medical Center in Chicago, they've been through this program. We've done this with camps. We've done this with independent restaurants and chain restaurants. So, you know, kind of going to that pizza place, um, Garlic Gyms and Jet City Pizza are two pizza places that we have worked with through this program. So uh, they have a corporate program in place, and every location has to have this program in place before they can serve a gluten-free pizza. And what they did in going through this process is I can walk into any garlic gyms and I should know and be able to see exactly what's put in place. And if I don't see it, the first thing we do is put a phone call into corporate saying this location can't pass this audit and here's the problem. So somebody needs to fix that and corporate automatically goes back to them. But in the process of wanting to do this and do it well, Garlic gyms removed a lot of the possible risk of contamination in their pizza places. They are a carry-out pizza place, so they make a hot pizza to go, um, by removing the flour from the facility. They have right. no flour in their pizza houses. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's I think that's a brilliant move on their part because they can use gluten-free flour um, if there needs to be anything, you know, to pat it on or to keep it from sticking or anything like that. And and that's just, it's something that maybe you and I would go, well, you know, duh, but <laughs> a lot of people in the restaurant <laughs> industry don't don't think that way. They think, well, this is the one I've been using all along. And, um, you know, so there's that education piece that's so important. But, you know, I think it's inspiring to see a pizza place like Garlic Gems interested enough to do it and to do it right. And there are plenty of other examples. You mentioned the Gaylord Hotels and, and a lot of the hospital systems and things like that. So I think you know that bodes well for a future um, where more restaurants and um, chains and hotels will come on board with the training. But let me just make sure I understand. With this training, even though you say right now you don't believe it's robust enough and you're going to be um, you know, making it even more robust, is it is it a tiered system for restaurants? Can a restaurant come in and get you know, training to a certain level and, and get an approval by you, and then if they go to the next level, they get a better approval by you? Or um, how does that work in terms of your um, in terms of, of how gig works with restaurants, as we were talking okay, about so, you know, with manufacturers, but just with restaurants now? Right. So at this point in time, GIG has two separate res- restaurant-related programs. One is the GFRAP program, the Gluten-Free Restaurant Awareness Program, and the other is the Gluten-Free Food Service Accreditation Program. The Gluten-Free Restaurant Awareness Program is the one that either the restaurant provides the menu or they give us all the information and we do the work to provide them a menu um, and we provide all the education and training. No matter which way it's done in that program, in the end, you will see the same thing. You will see a gluten-free, you will see a restaurant awareness sticker on the door. You'll see a statement on the menu that says that GIG worked with this restaurant to provide a gluten-free menu. 
and that it's being provided as a service. But again, it is up to the consumer sure. to make the final decision. Mm-hmm. You don't see a tiered program, and you won't know whether we did all the work or the restaurant did all the work. Even if the restaurant gives us the menu, we ask a ton of questions, and we make the restaurant give us a lot of information before we sign them on to the program. So we feel like in that program, whether we do the work or the restaurant does the work, it's the same program, and that is how it's treated across the board. The restaurant or the gluten-free food service accreditation program is the program we will move the restaurant awareness program into. So GFRAP will disappear towards the end of the year, and it will become or become part of that gluten-free food service accreditation where they will have to show us policies, procedures, and that kind of thing. Um, and, again, that is not a tiered program. You, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. There is no middle ground. Um, and it is, a, it is a scored program. So if you don't meet the standard that is set, um, you go back and you rework it until it's done right, and then we will sign off on it. But um, it if it requires two audits, I mean, I've been in one restaurant, I've been in there three times, and they still can't pass. I, we just won't do it. Mm-hmm. So there's not there's not like a low gluten designation, a uh, gluten. No, there's you know, not. You're not working with gluten ingredients, but the end product might be contaminated. There's nothing like that through your program. There is not. No. Well, um, I, you know, reading people obviously are commenting like crazy about the confusion surrounding some of these, um, you know, cases that are going on right now with restaurants trying to go gluten-free. There was something New York Times the end of last week had, um, you know, they were citing to a lot of these articles about how many new restaurants are going gluten-free and are making these announcements. You know, we heard from Chevy's. Um, Tex-Mex or Fresh-Mex or whatever it's called last week made an announcement as well and obviously Chuck E. Cheese and Domino's and so these really you know very um, restaurants everyone has heard of and they're saying oh we've got a gluten-free menu this is wonderful and people get really really excited and then when they learn more um, a lot of times they get, you know, really depressed <laughs> because it's like, you know, you're mm-hmm. dangling a carrot in front of them and, um, oh, but I really can't eat there. So I think that, you know, having some clarity about what it means to work with a given program and what can be expected on the back end, what a consumer should be able to expect to receive from that when they see a certification, I think is really important because there is so much confusion right now. Um, I was reading today on another um on another blog, comments about the, the, you know, the Domino's pizza. And, you know, people sort of go from one end of the spectrum to the other on it. But what is so upsetting to me personally, you know, being an advocate for people with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity is when people don't understand. And so they will then go in and say, well, I'm going to try it, and if I don't get sick, then I'll know it's okay. And I think you mentioned earlier in the show most people with celiac disease, you know, are, are not necessarily going to feel something immediately, and they may not feel something at any point in time that is an overt symptom, but they are actually experiencing damage internally, and it's triggering that autoimmune response for people with celiac, and that's so dangerous. And so where does that leave the consumer? Like, can they just never, you know, go out to eat ever, or, uh, you know, do they have choices? And I think having a conversation about what best practices are you know, taking somebody like Garlic Gems and what they're doing to make it a safer dining experience. Obviously, the person can make the choice for themselves at the end of the day, but 
having those options and working with those restaurants and exposing them to options to make a safer, um, you know, product, end product for the consumer is just so, so crucial. And I just, I wonder, you know, in thinking about all of this, how do you feel about, you know, in the in the wake of all of this publicity about all these restaurants who are supposedly going gluten-free, whether they are doing it the right way or not, how, where do you think that that ends up leaving us at the end of the day? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it's a bad thing? Um, do you think that restaurants are going to be scared away from going and offering gluten-free because of all of the bad press around some of these restaurants? Or do you think that there more of them are going to enter the fray because they're getting press, bad or good, but they're getting attention? Right. Well, first of all, I want to go back to the point you made, and, and it's a very valid point. We know that based on old, old terminology when uh, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, looked at celiac disease and came to a consensus statement that there are um, people who are asymptomatic. They don't have symptoms at all, and yet when you test their blood and you look at their villi, they're doing damage. So the lack of symptoms in eating a food or eating a meal out or Domino's pizza is not a good indication of whether or not damage is being done. So it's very, very important that we not assume that a lack of symptoms is means I'm okay and I'm doing fine. On the other hand, the same thing is true of symptoms. Um, if you get diarrhea or you get a gut ache, you cannot automatically jump to the conclusion that you were glutenized, right. as a lot of people would like to say. And so you really have to be a sleuth when it comes to figuring out what exactly is happening here. And maybe it is gluten, maybe it's not. But a lack of symptoms or having symptoms does not necessarily mean it's gluten that caused it. Mm-hmm. Having said that, many, many restaurants, uh, res- the restaurant industry is interesting to me because it took them a while to get on this bandwagon for gluten-free. They weren't going to touch it. Um, it was complicated. They don't want to deal with the allergy situation. But down the road, they're being forced to deal with allergies, and they might as well deal with gluten at the same time because what yes. the processes you would set, put in place for gluten are the same processes you would put mm-hmm. in place for any other allergy. So if you're going to do it, do it right and do it consistently for all allergens that you deal with in your restaurants. The problem I, I agree is completely. That, <laughs> yeah, the problem is the restaurant industry is now hearing that people like Garlic Gems, people like um, other restaurants are making money having gluten-free menus. There mm-hmm. is a business to having a gluten-free menu. And so when the economy is down and you're looking for the next thing that will bring people into your restaurant, gluten-free is one of those things. Unfortunately, it is also my experience that sometimes I believe, I firmly believe that all chefs are educated in allergens and cross-contamination and things like that, but until recently it hasn't been a big issue. So now as they move into this, they feel like they know what they need to know, but they don't always know. And so it is very important that they take a step back and look at their processes and and critically look at what they're doing to make sure that, yes, they are avoiding cross-contamination. And that's not always happening. 
because they're in a hurry to get their gluten-free menu up. So right. they're putting things on there by mistake. They're assuming that the fryer oil is not a problem until somebody like, you know, NFCA or CSA or I come along and say, oops, you can't do that. Um, and it, it's those kind of aha moments that make them step back and finally say, oh, maybe I don't know everything I need to know. And that's where we're at. We've got them anxious to do gluten-free and not really understanding what they're dealing with. Or we have them anxious to do gluten-free and trying to do it in a halfway manner so that they can say they're gluten-free but not really. And well, that I think is that, not yeah. a good thing. That raises something that you and I have talked about numerous times over the last few weeks and, and over months, but particularly the last few weeks. I think something that you pointed out early on in our conversations was this, you know, we need a universal threshold, which we, we feel like we've established with the less than 20 parts mm-hmm. per million gluten for um, the, you know, for the FDA rules. But we we need that universal threshold to hold true for manufacturing and for restaurants because, Right now, what we're seeing is a segregation, and I think that there, you know, we rail against this constantly in the social media world that um, that I float in so much. You know, you're constantly saying to people, it's not a fad diet. I know that you know Miley Cyrus might be dabbling in it or whatever, but that doesn't mean that that's who the gluten free consumer is. The gluten free consumer is here. And they're here to stay. They're not going to drop in and out. They're not falling off the wagon. You know, they're and they're here as lifelong consumers. And more and more of us um, are joining this um, this diet every day for the same reasons because of awareness and because of um, you know people learning about um, the way that it's harming their bodies. So there's more and more people who are joining this, but that core group of people needs the same threshold. You can't have you can't introduce a, a gluten free menu for the fad dieter. And and that right. is the fundamental point that, you know, we really need to all be on board with that and not encourage restaurants to dabble in gluten-free because it's a moneymaker for them. They need to serve right. the gluten-free consumer and treat all gluten-free consumers the same. There cannot be contamination. It must be, exactly. you know, a gluten-free meal. And, and well, the way you put it when you important. said a universal threshold I thought was so important. Right. Well, and it's very important, Jules, that we also look at this as if it were maybe like an, a peanut allergy. You don't have a low peanut diet out there and then a peanut free. It is all the same. We don't know if a gluten sensitive person, a non celiac gluten sensitivity person, or any other person who is following a gluten-free diet that doesn't have celiac disease, we really don't know enough about that disease or that condition. We don't know if it's gluten. We don't know if they're more sensitive or less sensitive. We suspect that it's not causing damage, but obviously there's an inflammation process that could be associated with it, which causes problems in and of itself. So until we really know more about this consumer group, it is it is absolutely wrong from a medical standpoint to assume that you can give them more gluten and it's okay because we right. don't know. We don't have that science behind us right now. And, and because of what we were talking about earlier, but so many people don't understand that damage is still being done to their bodies even if they don't you know, go run to the bathroom or throw up afterwards or feel sick for three days. 
that might not happen to you, and yet you still could be sickened by the contamination or by the cross-contact. And that is the point that, I mean, it's such a difficult thing to grasp. Um, It's like when you don't burn your hand on the stove, you don't realize that, you know, that's actually what was harming you. And, you know, especially with celiac disease, but especially now we're talking about gluten sensitivity, which we don't know enough about, Um, you know, there has to be that universal standard and the universal threshold by which we all understand. We're all speaking the same language. This is exactly the conversation we had with um, Michael Taylor, the deputy director of the FDA, this time last year at the Mm -hmm. Gluten-Free Summit. We said it has to be, we all have to understand what we're talking about. There has to be... A, a word, which is gluten-free, that everybody knows what that word means. You can't say, well, you know, it's low gluten or it's a little bit of gluten or it might be contaminated, but, it, you know, no, it's got to be the same thing. And um, and I think we impressed that upon him, certainly, because he, you know, he was he was flabbergasted that, you know, this hadn't been done and, and yet it was so important to so many people. And he immediately jumped right um, on it and within three months we had the the proposed rules. But, you know, we need it for the restaurants too. And right. I tell people every day, you can still go out to eat. I promise you that you can. It's not You're not being given a death sentence. You're never going to be able to go out to eat or socialize with your friends. But, again, like you said, it's incumbent upon you to take your health in your own hands and ask the questions and make the decision for yourself. But we also need to be educating the restaurants that their consumer that they want to target and they want to make money off of, which is okay. I mean, that's why they're in business. Their consumer needs the standard to be less than 20 parts per million gluten. No right. ifs and or buts. <laughs> they need to understand, the restaurants need to understand that this is a medical condition. It is no different from a food standpoint than a peanut allergy. You have to be as serious about this as you are about a peanut allergy. And therefore, there's no middle ground at this point in time. Um, the middle ground is really the consumer's choice. But a restaurant can't say, well, I'm low gluten, so it's okay for some people, but not for others. We don't know that. And until we have that information, there should never be a low gluten diet. Right. I agree completely. (laughs) Well, there you have it. That wraps it up. I mean, we've solved the world's problems today, haven't we? Well, Cynthia, I wanted to, again, thank you very much for making yourself available. I think that um, you have enlightened folks today on lots of things about the programs that are out there, about what we can look forward to in the future with the certification organization as well as with the um, food service restaurant accreditation and also have um, shared some of your dietitian expertise with us as well. So I really appreciate it. I would encourage folks to go to gluten.net, which is the GIG website, take a look at the events that they have coming up in June as well as all kinds of um, more information about these different programs. And they have you have restaurants listed on there as well. Right, who have gone through your program and who are uh, accredited through GFRAP or the Food Service Restaurant Accreditation? Yes, that's true. Okay, so you can get those that information on there as well. You can look for those mm-hmm. restaurants. Um, and and also to reach out through Facebook or Twitter. I know you're gluten.dotnet on Twitter, and um, gluten the Gluten Intolerance Group of North America is also on Facebook. So thank you again so much for your time, and thanks for listening, everyone. Please reach out to um, Cynthia and obviously to me anytime you have questions. We are here to help. I'm Jules Gluten Free on Twitter and Jules Gluten Free Flower on Facebook, and I wish everyone a happy and healthy holiday weekend. Mm-hmm.